Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Okay, hello everyone. Can you hear me well? Yes, and how are you doing today? Good. That's actually surprising uh, because quite a lot of people are actually nowadays suffering from a lot of stress and from a lot of mental health problems, actually mental health in crisis. So I'm not totally sure whether you were totally honest when I asked you, but uh, hey. Um, so my talk is going to be about mental health in crisis, if this one works. And this one doesn't, so even the computer is in crisis, can you imagine? So, um, actually it was already mentioned that um, actually James and I, and also a third person, oh, you, you, have, to, you have the magic touch. <coughs> you have a magic touch, must be there. So a lot of what I'm going to speak now about is about is coming from our next book. We're going to launch this book in the Mental Health Awareness Week, and we will uh, let you know more about that. But um, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more why we had to write this book, and also a bit about my own journey with this. But let's start to speak a little bit about why crisis, why is it relevant? So let's start. So imagine that someone goes to the doctor and says, doctor, can you help me? I've hurt my toe. And imagine that the doctor says, well, I will remove your tonsils then. I think all of us would call this a medical error. Do we agree on that? Yes? Okay. Imagine the following situation. You already know where I'm going to, but hey. Um, imagine someone goes to the doctor and says, well, doctor, do you think I'm crazy? Because I'm depressed and anxious? Because I have housing problems? Because my job in the gig economy does not give me any certainty? Because I live from the food bank? Because I'm afraid that the Brexit could throw us in a terrible economic crisis? Because the ice caps are melting, animals are dying, we are running towards extinction? because the economic uh, uh, inequality feels terribly unjust. And because I cannot be myself when people fight against my rights. And I'm afraid of the creeping uh, racism and discrimination that's going on in the UK and many other countries. What do you think? Am I crazy for feeling sad and anxious? And imagine that a doctor then would answer Yes, you are totally crazy, and we're going to lock you up. I think most of us will agree with me, or at least I hope, that we would call this a psychiatric order, uh, or error. 
because the problems that those people are facing are problems in their living situation and not necessarily a problem with their mind or with their, um, yeah, with their neurons for which they need to have directly any antidepressants or any other types of drugs. However, the reality is that this quite often does happen. And we've already heard from James this morning how the pharmaceutical industry um, and also the big psychiatric lobbies have quite a lot of ways to actually uh, create some problems out of ordinary daily life problems. Because what I would say is anyone who is not emotionally affected by the state of our world is crazy. And anyone who is emotionally affected by the state of our world is realistic. And this is my starting point of this presentation. If we take this as the starting point, also for psychiatry or any type of psychotherapy, I think we will develop a totally different perspective and a much more human one. So this is what I'm going to do in this presentation. I've already given you my main message. So hopefully we are more or less uh, there on the same page. But what I'm now going to speak about is particularly about crisis. I'm going to speak about how is it like to live in times of crisis, particularly on the mental health impact of all the things that are going on at this moment, possibly in our own lives, but at least in the lives of many other people. I'm going to speak about that it's not only our life situation or society that is in the crisis, it is also our mental health system itself that is in crisis. And that is already what James was speaking about. And I will elaborate on that. Whereas James has been speaking mainly about psychiatry and about drugs, I will speak more about psychotherapy and the psychotherapeutic system and about the education system to speak about how there are very fundamental flaws, particularly here in the UK, and with all the different interests from a small group of people behind that. And finally, I will start uh, reflecting on that, and I'm going to ask, okay, what is actually behind this? What's actually going on? And how can we actually possibly get out of this? So this is what I'm not going to share with you in this presentation. So I have to say, from my own background, is I'm originally from the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands, the place where I'm from, is only 150 miles from here. So I think many big cities in the UK are even further away than my hometown. However, I immigrated uh, now six years ago here to the UK. And I have to admit that I experienced a big, big culture clash. And it's a thing that is only now that I'm starting to become aware of it. And this is very much also the thing that I actually, I had to start reflecting on what's actually going on with myself, because I found myself suddenly in a lot of stress, in a lot of, actually in a, in a bit of a crisis when I arrived here, and I still am sometimes. And I feel it's much more than in the Netherlands. And I started to reflect, what's, what's going on there? What's the difference? The thing is, in the Netherlands, a lot of those issues that I've just mentioned about things like housing, benefits, um, healthcare, a lot of the things there is like a safety net, so it didn't feel that stressful. And it's not such a polarized type of politics. The uh, newspapers are much more independent. 
So being a foreigner and coming here in that sense, I started to reflect on that, hey, what's going on? And because I've been struggling with houses, with, with housing, like who doesn't, I would say, and things like that. And I started to think, what does that with mental health? As a newcomer, for me, that was very apparent. Coming with my own psychotherapeutic expertise, I started to think, well, what kind of impact could it have on us? So that is when I started to really look into the research on this. And what I'm now going to share with you, each statement is more or less supported by empirical literature, because I really love research. So, um, yeah, and I'm not putting all the references everywhere in, the, in my presentation, because you can find those actually in our book. So what type of crises are there? And what type of impact does that have on our own mental health? The thing is, like in the past, the thing is in the past, um, and past I speak about several centuries ago, mental health problems were mainly seen as an individual problem, uh, particularly for instance, here in the UK, where there was, for instance, Bethlehem, which was the big psychiatric hospital, where actually a lot of people came there each year, like 100,000 people visited uh, Bethlehem to see all those crazy people locked up in cages. It was like a zoo, a zoo of crazy people. Uh, and they were see being seen as, well, yeah, they had individual problems, and um, that's it. However, yeah, so the thing is, they were saying, well, those people are abnormal, they have a brain problem, or they have a, uh, another problem with, with who they are. But they didn't look at the circumstances. Fortunately, nowadays, the way how we think about mental health has really changed. So it's not a matter of it's only nature or it's only nurture. Um, no, nowadays we really think about an individual's mental health is a combination of very complex interactions. And you cannot say it's only this or it's only that. And that's also the thing what you could hear also from James. For instance, when you speak about autism, there are very clear um, yeah, some genetic aspects to it, some aspects also about birth. Um, we also know that about schizophrenia. Yes, there are some markers, some issues there. But you cannot totally reduce it to that, to say, it's only that. No, because a lot of people actually do have similar type of genetic changes, but may not really develop the problems or not the problems in such a strong amount. So you see that individual mental health is a complex interaction between someone's genes, the physical environment, which already starts in the womb, actually of the mother, the social environment, so for instance, the family in which you grow up, the messages from your peers, the messages from your lecturers, from your teachers, uh, the commercials, the governments, all this type of yeah, social influences. But then also your lifestyle, your habits, and then also how do you cope with those problems. And in this presentation, what I really focus on is particularly those aspects that are mainly about our surroundings, our context. 
because it's not only genes and it's not only our individual coping style. That was very much the idea in the 80s or the beginning of the 90s, that it was either totally genetic or totally biological or it was totally your own fault. No, we know nowadays from loads of research it's a much more complex interaction. Now, for instance, I've been working for a long time at the Department of Genetics, where actually they did big studies, big trials, to actually look how, for instance, environmental factors or lifestyles could more or less activate certain genetic patterns and how, how there's that interaction. So whenever I speak about mental health issues that people have, we need to start looking at all those different things at the same time and not reduce it to only one thing. And that also means for the solution. That also means that the solution may not always be immediately like going into the biological domain. Because it could be actually that's much more the social context or the behavior of people. That's the issue. And this is like the questions that James was more or less also asking about psychiatry, where the focus is relatively quickly on a medical solution. Whereas when you really look at what's the cause of it, it's maybe much more complex. So I started to actually look at this like, okay, so the individual is an individual who's always in a context. So I always like to visualize things. I really love that. So I made this figure where you see in the center there's the self. And the self um, it's just me, for instance, and I'm in a bigger context. I'm like, quite literally, first here I'm with my body. Um, and then uh, I also have my emotions. There's the daily life. Then there's the community, there's, there's you. you. You are part of my surroundings. Then there's also the wider society, where there are marathons uh, uh, running around us, things like that. And there's even a global system with things like climate change. So. For each individual, when we think about ourselves, when we think about who we are and the things that we struggle with, we need to think that from within all those circles. So for instance, when I really look at the global scale, so the most wider circle around me, there are issues at this moment like climate crisis, socio-economic inequality, there's a lot of a sense of justice or injustice that people may have. In a society, there are issues about housing problems, racism, unemployment, benefits. In a community, there can be issues with your neighborhood, uh, with, yeah, if you have terrible neighbors, that will influence your <laughs> mental health. The conditions of your work, having a very uh, negative manager, relationships with friends, colleagues, and others. And then in your daily life, there's the daily life, the daily stress at work, the daily stress from having to do the groceries. Well, there are very long queues, which will also affect your mental health to some extent. Your lifestyle, your environmental uh, mastery, so the, the extent to which you have the, the feeling that you can actually control your situation, whereas often we can't. And then there are a more emotional level, which is about the self-esteem. Um, and yeah, all the, the range of emotion we may have. And then finally, there may be some more biological issues, like actually our, if we have like a more physical condition, like um, yeah, a lot of physical conditions, actually when you have a chronic or a life-threatening disease, just think of anything like diabetes, uh, 
uh, like cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, that all have an impact also on our mental health, on default. And finally, there may also be some issues more about myself, how I relate myself to myself. And that's very much about my sense, yeah, my sense of self, my and my sense of freedom, sense of responsibility, etc. So I'm just giving you this overview, um, just to give you a feeling of how the self is embedded in much, much wider context. Now you always need to think of an individual as an individual in a context. So let's now dive into some of those examples of what are those crises in our environment, what is going on and what could influence us. So the first one that I had to look at is what I call nowadays eco-anxiety. In the last two weeks there have been big campaigns from Extinction Rebellion, which is a big group of activists asking for the governments and the authorities to do some immediate action because there's a lot of climate issues going on. There's a lot of research that actually shows that a lot of people suffer from eco-anxiety. That's anxiety about yeah, the changes that there are in the climate. And when we are realistic about it or when we really look at some of the facts, then there's a lot to worry about. I could even say that, or even hypothesize that denial of climate change could actually be a way to cope with such an eco-anxiety. Because when we realize the direction that we're going with our climate change, we are possibly heading towards our own extinction, possibly when we really are realistic about it, about the melting of the ice caps, etc. And one of the ways to deal with that is, is actually to say, no, it's not happening, it cannot be happening. So this is a crisis, it's a climate crisis. And even when people say there's no climate change, even then there's a crisis because there's a debate going on. There is tensions between people. That's one crisis. Let's look at another crisis. This is what we call the Brexit blues. Um, so the thing is like um, whatever um, perspective you have on the EU or on Brexit, uh, I'm not speaking about that. I'm here directly speaking about the emotional impact the Brexit has had on a lot of people. Because actually I work at the Existential Academy and we have uh, an emotional support service for Europeans there. And if you go on our website you'll be able to find that. And this is for people who are struggling with the emotional impact of the Brexit, of all the uncertainties of living here, of your own status. Like I have to admit, this is one of the things that has been worrying myself quite a lot, uh, as not being a British citizen. It's a thing that worries me. Uh, and these words in this word cloud are the words that we have actually found in quite a lot of conversations with people. Feelings like devastated, depressed, angry, betrayed. And I've even, I know several people who, who have become quite suicidal as being Europeans living here in the UK. There's been a, um, like, I believe like a three-fold uh, amount of racist and discriminatory attacks since the Brexit referendum. So there is a lot going on there. So this is another example of another crisis in our context, in our surroundings. Another, another crisis, and that is the austerity crisis. Again, 
regardless of what your political opinion is, it is a fact that the austerity crisis that the last governments have been, uh, yeah, have been running, that all the austerity measures, the cuts in benefits, um, it is a fact that this UK austerity programme has inflicted great misery on a lot of Britons. And this comes from an independent United Nations report. This is the first time in history that the United Nations has really looked into the impact of economic uh, measures from a government on the population. The first time that they actually were looking into those human rights violations. And the UK was the first one to be picked and to actually have been uh, very strongly been told, uh, been told off about this. And the government totally denied any impact at all. Let's focus a little bit more on what does it mean, austerity. So a couple of years ago, there was a group that's called Psychologists Against Austerity. They've now, a lot of the same people have now actually emerged into a new group, and that is called Psychologists for Social Change. And uh, I'm very honored that they have also contributed also a chapter also to our new book. And this is a briefing paper which I also gave in Parliament, in the House of Parliament, to discuss what, um, actually what are the facts. What does research tell about austerity? Just again, let's have a look at the facts. So they found a lot of studies showing that there are many vulnerable subgroups where we see structural discrimination, but also a structural impact on mental health. So the groups that I've put here are the groups that also psychologists against austerity have identified as groups who are really based on evidence, but these are groups who suffer from more mental health problems due to the discrimination and the socio-economic situation. And I've started with speaking about the role of many women. How for many women, there are many different causes of actually why a lot of women suffer or are seen to suffer from more mental health problems than men. And it often has to do with different roles, has to do with a lot of uh, discrimination, has to do with a lot of uh, stress in the daily life. Um, so there's a lot going on there. Similar actually it's people in a lower socioeconomic status. That research shows that when you grow up as, um, for instance, on one of the council estates where your parents don't have loads of money, where your parents may not have a high education, then actually it's less, less likely for yourself to actually climb up the social ladder than like a peer who grows up as part of a much richer and highly educated family. We see, that the social, we see that the social mobility has been significantly been decreasing. In other terms, it has become more and more difficult for people to actually improve their position in society. The same issue is also for black and Asian minority ethnicity individuals. There's a lot of discrimination going on a lot of racism, explicit, but even more implicit in the daily life interactions, which has or can have a big impact, not only on their socio-economic progress, and for instance, the ability to get a job, but also on 
yeah, having a sense of belonging, having, um, yeah, it has an impact on mental health. The same for LGBTQI people, so for lesbians, bisexual, gay, heterosexual, queer, and intergender people, how actually, like, even though we have come from far, like whereas indeed in 1974, um, actually it was still mentioned how being lesbian or gay was a disorder in the DSM. It was a disorder. And just by a number of votes, by no other reason, they decided it's not a disorder. So that's only like a couple of decades ago that since then we are not um, yeah, being regarded as uh, yeah, having a disorder. However, when we look at transgender people, there is still a lot of discrimination going on there in the daily life, but also in the psychiatric care, where actually they still speak about gender dysphoria. They still use terminology which is pathologizing. It's seen, that's the word disorder, too often involved in it. Whereas it's not necessarily disorder, <laughs> it's an experience. And that is not really recognized. And we also see that people who suffer from mental health problems, so for instance, if you're depressed or anxious, that in itself is already quite uh, difficult because people with mental health problems are even more likely to be stigmatized, to be, um, to be in a social isolation. So what happens there is actually that, that aggravates your problem. So what we see is that all those situations when you are part of those vulnerable subgroups, let's call it in such a way, is that actually it, has, it creates a big emotional impact on things like stigma, fear and distrust, humiliation, shame, instability, insecurity, feeling trapped. So being part of those subgroups in our current society has a big impact on our mental health. And we need to really say it's those so societal issues which have an impact on themselves. And this is just an example about the suicide. We know that the three or four thousand people who have killed themselves in the last uh, uh, years um, because the benefits uh, were stopped or they had benefit sanctions. And when we look at a lot of research, we see that uh, actually the more socioeconomically unequal a country is, that's in other words, the bigger the gap is between the rich people and the poor people, the larger the mental health impact and the less, the less happy people are. And at this moment, the UK is the most unequal Western country. And at this moment, the UK is also the country with possibly one of the largest numbers of mental health problems. And those two are strongly correlated. And addiction is not a big issue. Yes, I don't need to tell you enough. I, I don't need to tell you about this because I think that's also very clear. Like, the UK is one of the few countries in the world where betting is really allowed. Even like commercials for betting is allowed, which is really weird. And we see at the same time that the UK is one of the largest numbers of people with betting addictions, of gambling addictions. Surprise, surprise. <coughs> That is the question. Do we want to actually know what's going on? Of course, that was a small clip from The Matrix, the movie The Matrix.
So I've been, I've been telling you about a lot of those different types of crises. I've been saying, well, okay, the individual, we need to see the individual within the social context. And this is a social context, context that has a big impact on the mental health. But what's actually really going on? What's the bigger picture? What, let, 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 let's try to reflect on that a bit. One of the people who has done this type of reflection a lot is Michel Foucault. And he was saying, well, nowadays we have like a crisis of self-confidence. So for instance, in the past, um, a government would tell us very directly what they expected from us. They said, well, you need to pay your tax, uh, and if you don't, you get a fine. Nowadays, it can become slightly more complex, where it's more about making you feel guilty when you don't do something. It makes you feel bad, and it's the idea about being a good citizen. They speak about citizenship. So, what Michel Foucault was saying is like, instead of a government governing people, people start to govern themselves. So, what happens then is, like, you start to blame yourself. Imagine that you have not, that you've decided not to pay your taxes, and, but you know that, well, they cannot really find out. But you may start to feel guilty, you may feel bad about that. And that's precisely the thing that governments try to do. To make you feel like, yeah, that you start to blame yourself for your issues. So this is what we see, is like a lot of research has been going on around feelings of guilt and blame. And how this indeed has been related to people who start to have high demands for themselves, for what they see as good or bad behavior. So this is one hypothesis about what could be going on. But let's, let's look a bit further. So there also seems to be a paradox. Because on the one hand, in the society, we're being told, okay, be free and be responsible for yourself. So, for instance, pay your taxes, that's your duty, we're not going to help you with that. Uh, but also, like, you need, you need to take care of your own education, you need to make sure that you improve your skills, that's all your own responsibility. So that is the big myth, that's what we're being told. But at the same time, the reality is that we experience a lot of manipulation, um, starting with things like Cambridge Analytica, and uh, which has influenced a lot of our Facebook, even like in Parliament, those things have been told. Uh, but we know that from a lot of research how there's like a paradox that we get the message that we're free and we're responsible for ourselves. But on the other hand, there's a lot of nudging going on, as they say that. The government spends, I believe, what is it, between five and ten millions a year in, in like a department which particularly focuses on how can we actually um, yeah, nudge people into the right behavior. How can, we give, how can we give them those hints? Usually kind of subliminally, in such a way that we can get them into the right direction. So there's that paradox, and that is a weird paradox which can make us feel kind of helpless, like because we are free, but at the same time we are not free, and, but, but, yeah, that's difficult. And this is like, actually like that in, in society we may suffer from like this kind of paradox. And this is also what I call an existential crisis. Actually, I'm not the only one who's calling that. 
Because what's going on actually is on a much deeper level. Is that all those crises that are going on in a society, all those issues that are happening, and we're more or less being told, well, actually, you have only yourself to blame for, and because that's the message we get. But actually, I can then start to feel like, well, I'm to blame, but I'm not to blame in society, and there's so many things going on in society. Society is so complex. There are all those risks I need to think about. Um, that's a lot. There's a lot going on. And so I'm not only stressed about the specific climate crisis, I'm not only stressed about the possibility of, using, of, of losing my benefits, I'm not only afraid of not being able to get a job, I'm, it gets even at a much more deeper level that I start to question everything in life. Because it is much deeper than only one or two specific crises. No, it, it's much it, it's like a sum of issues. And that's what people start to really become much more aware of. Well, I'm a limited being, and on the one hand I'm free, but I'm also responsible, I'm uh, being stuck there. So people start to ask such existential questions. There's quite a lot of research on this, where it's so sh showing how quite a lot of people are asking questions like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how I can live a meaningful life in such a situation, in such a society where all these crises are going on. I really don't know. I would love to follow my dreams, my passions in life, but I cannot because I still have a big mortgage to, to, to pay off. Uh, I feel I'm discriminated, I'm stigmatized, and so I cannot live the life I want to. And yeah, these can be quite big questions that are going on. And actually, on top of this, is actually that our system, our economy in which we live, it also gives us certain messages. And I've summarized this with actually a quote which has, which has often been attributed to millennials. Although I really dare to say it may actually be more the older people uh, in the first place, possibly, the generation excess. I want it and I want it now. This is very much, I think, how we can summarize a lot of the messages we get in, yeah, from companies. So at this moment, I'm writing my next book, which will be called The Economics of Meaning in Life. So I'm looking into, actually, how are we being told by companies and by governments what is a meaningful life? Because I was saying, well, on one hand, we're being told, well, of course, you're free to live your own meaningful life. Of course you're free to determine for yourself what is your direction in life. Of course we're democracy. We're not a fascist state. Come on, you have all that freedom. Of course you can live a meaningful life. However, at the same time, we get a lot of messages all the time. That's also simply by the system, how the system works. And I've been now doing quite a lot of research looking at different types of societies. So I did some worldwide studies. And I found out that those economies or those countries which focus more on a neoliberal or capitalist type of economy, those economies, they focus much more on materialistic, hedonistic or self-oriented types of meaning. So in other words, when a country focuses on capitalist ideas, when that's the way how they have been structured, then actually it's more likely that actually people in those countries will indeed focus on getting more stuff, that's that materialism, 
that people will focus much more on just having fun for the sake of having fun. Or that people are very much about themselves, about their own development and their, their own success. Whereas countries which are less capitalistic minded focus much more on social types of meanings, helping others, altruism. It focuses much more on larger meanings, which is about larger community, which is much more about trying to create the world into a better place, trying to create ethics, bring <coughs> ethics. So you really see that quite directly people in our type of economy are much more focused on a quite limited set of meanings. And also the way how we look at it is in a very functionalistic way, in an idea like, well, I simply can make my own meaning, or I can simply go to the store and I can, can buy meaning, you know, as, as if you can get it from the shelves. Uh, or like, I'll just go on this retreat and that will solve everything. Or I'm going to buy one of the self-help books, like seven steps to a successful life, and I follow the seven steps and my life will be perfect. I hope that you understand, well, that's not how life works. But this is the message that we get all the time. Just look at all those psychology magazines. Look at all those books, all the self-help books. This is the message we get all the time. As a reality, it doesn't work that way. And this is what we can get frustrated about. Because then we have followed all those seven steps from those beautiful books. <laughs> and then we find out, hey, my life is still, still meaningless in the same way. Yeah, I'm now doing those seven steps, but does it make me a much better person? No, not necessarily. So, even worse is that research shows that when you focus on those materialistic, hedonistic, self-oriented types of meanings, if that's your focus, it's actually your mental and physical health will suffer from that. For the sake of your mental and physical health, I would recommend you to focus more on social and larger types of meanings and not try to find the meaning of your life in buying stuff or just having fun. So this is just based on my research. So there's this context which is influencing very much how we cope with the issues. And then so I've formulated this um, and this is like what I feel is like an underlying trend. That's what I call the capitalist life syndrome. People who have seen some of my previous lectures already know this bit. Where I'm saying the capitalist life syndrome is, of course, this is like a, almost like a kind of a sarcastic type of diagnosis, although this one is based on evidence base, actually, possibly more than DSM, actually. So I think some of the disorders in the DSM may be less evidence-based than this syndrome. Um, but hey, um, I actually created this more as like a kind of a sarcastic thing and actually now I find in some of my research that there's quite a lot of evidence for it. By the way, if you want to give me some more evidence for that, please fill in, go to this website. This is uh, the uh, website meaningsurvey.com. And in this, I'm actually studying actually whether there's such a thing as the capitalist life syndrome. So please fill it in. Sorry, there was my marketing in between. Um, now the capitalist life syndrome, is like where people live in a capitalist country, in such a culture as we do, which focuses on the materialistic, hedonistic and self-oriented types of meanings, but also have this functionalistic idea, this naive idea about that you can simply make or buy your meaning. But it also is combined with people being quite fatalistic, 
or feeling helpless, feeling trapped. Because on the one hand, they're being told you're free, but actually you're not free, that paradox. And that makes people really feel stuck and experience existential anxiety and mental health problems. And I've started to see actually a pattern worldwide that those issues go hand in hand with each other. And um, yeah, and this is very much what I believe has created a lot of crisis for us. So in sum, what I've now told you is like a very white tapestry, possibly difficult to see the full patterns there in what I've been talking about, but I wanted to make you aware of like our surroundings, you know, where the self is always embedded in that wider context and all the things that are going on which are independent but actually they also seem to be connected. So there are many crises and each of those crises affects our mental health. And then maybe this underlying cultural trend of what I call the capitalist life syndrome. And uh, yeah, and then if you know this, you would say, well, if this is the case, we need to have a very, very good mental health care and a very good education. That's what you would say. So how do we cope with crisis? Simply keep calm and carry on? Or change? Um, well, I will speak for five minutes more and I think then it's time for a break. But I'm going to show you first a little bit more about some of yeah, the responses from the government because you would say, well, if we know that mental health is so much affected by our surroundings, by our context, well, let's make people resilient. Let's help people. Let's have a good mental health system. Well, actually we know that the mental health care system itself is in crisis. Here are two people, of many people, who are actually at the foundations of the modern way how we think about mental health. Few people would think that Margaret Thatcher was so much involved in that, but she was. But particularly the person next to her, which is Sirkis Joseph, who wrote a series of papers in 1983 and 1984. And actually, what they did is actually, instead of saying, yeah, let's build the resilience and empowerment to help people with their own life situation, instead of that, what we now know from having read a lot of those papers from Sirkis Joseph, what we now know is a key strategy that was determined in 1983 and 1984 is to actually more or less prevent a critical population. This was quite deliberately written by Sirkis Joseph. This is not like any left type of uh, uh, paranoid idea about what's going on in the Tories. This is just, you can read this in the white papers and in the biography of Sirkis Joseph. Quite literally, that Sirkis Joseph, who also later became the education minister, actually got rid of a lot of the critical thinking skills modules at schools. The system, the education system, totally changed to actually focus only or particularly on skills that are helpful for the industry. And these did not include more critical thinking skills. And also with housing, this was a thing what Keith Joseph very deliberately said. And also more recently, actually Nick Clegg also said that. He confirmed that in some interviews that he said it's still the policy of the Tories not to create a good housing situation. Because if you give a lot of social housing, like big council estates, that can actually be a place where people start to join each other and may actually start to form a front 
against the government and may even start to riot in that sense. So deliberately, this was the idea from Sir Keith Joseph and this policy is still going on. Let's look at one example, that's education. And we know that from a lot of the black papers and actually from uh, James, uh, from, from, from James uh, Callaghan who actually started to focus education on economic aims. So to say, well, actually all the um, schools, they have to follow like a core curriculum and there will be like um, control. We will have a government control to, to check whether they are actually looking at those outcomes and actually to make sure that there's not enough time left actually for other types of skills, possibly. And like in the 1990s, there was like the so-called British values debate in the education system, where also certain more values, cultural ideas, were actually also added to the system. And also that is being checked officially by the government. And actually several authors have also said, well, it's not only the fact that the curriculum has changed in the 80s, but also the way how it's being taught where it's even more top-down, and some are saying, well, there's something like a hidden, hidden uh, curriculum, where, for instance, the classroom structure teaches a style of obedience. And there's been quite some research on the effect of different types of school education system. And there is research that shows the effects of this type of, yeah, let's call it neoliberal controlled education particularly when we look at how people live their lives and what's meaningful for them. We start to see that when a student or when a pupil comes from school, their way how to look at their lives is much more in line with what I first described as the capitalist life syndrome. It's having a relatively narrow focused idea about life, that life is mainly about having a good job, having success in your job. And also the illusion of technical rationality about life. That's also what I call the functionalist idea about, well, as long as you do this and that and that, and you work hard enough, you, get in, you go into higher education, if you do all of that, then you'll be successful. That's the kind of illusion. And to some extent, we've seen that in the type of public school system we have in the UK, when you compare that to other systems, for instance, like in Finland, Norway, Denmark, Netherlands, Germany, school children have less, less critical skills. And also less psychological skills. And it may not be surprising that between 2 and 12% of all school children, and I'm speaking about underage, so until 14, 15 years old, they suffer from mental health problems. That's not surprising when you think about how the system works, the school system, with all the stresses, all the high expectations, all those unrealistic ideas about life. And then this continues even into academia. My friend Ron Roberts, who was actually also going to be here today, unfortunately couldn't come because he was stuck in the marathon. But this is an amazing book that he wrote about capitalism on campus which describes how actually the crisis continues on academics in the academia world. And this is the number of suicides. And you can see that there is an increase in suicides in higher education, where more and more students are killing themselves. And very much that seems to have to do with debts, not being to pay off all the loans. 
uh, feel the stress from the system, from yeah, being tested all the time. So it has a big impact on mental health. So then you would say, well, if this is the issue, okay, so we know that there are a lot of crises, a lot of issues going on in our society which has an impact on mental health. So we already know that the education, that is not helping us with that. Okay, let's then at least make sure that the mental health care for people with problems is okay. Let's invest enough in mental health care. If people are in the end totally coming up with problems, let's help them. And what is happening? No, there's a big reduction in investment in mental health care. We see over the last decade a drop of 22% in psychiatric beds, a drop of 16% in mental health nurses, whereas at the same time we see an increase of demand, whereas more than one-third of more people have been coming in at the same time. And even like our government has been promising more and more billions over the last years, but still, still absolutely not enough. And then you ask, what's going on there with the government? What is going on? And it almost sounds as if there's the idea that government starts to have is about mental health, as if it is like something like Mac mental health. As almost quite literally the the, one of the British ministers said, well, the NHS could learn from McDonald's. Literally a quote. And he is not the first minister saying that. The clearest example of this was the improved access to psychological therapies, IAPT. That sounds nice, improved access to, to psychological therapies. So the start, they launched it uh, around 2006. You would say, increased access. Oh, wow, wow, that sounds good. A good idea to increase the access. Yeah, oh, absolutely. However, I hope that you've already learned that from James this morning, that whenever you hear such a beautiful term, usually it means the opposite. <laughs> so um, you can see here the stepped care model from IAPT. Um, which, because the idea is, this is a system that was developed by, you would say that should be, have been developed by a very good person with a lot of expertise in psychotherapy and all the psychological therapies. No, this was designed, of course, by an economist. Because economists know much more about mental health than any mental health specialists. You know that, I assume. Um, so you see that in the first place, like people, well, will just have like an assessment by the GP, then they will possibly get a flyer, like a leaflet, then possibly they get some online therapy possibly, at one point they may have five sessions, and possibly if they are real crazy, yes, then we can possibly refer them to a second or third line, and um, yeah, and then we will invest a little, little bit more in them. But actually most of the people, you see an increasing number of people will never get to those higher stages. So I would say, okay, so apparently less people require yeah, uh, strong mental health care. Well, or is it simply the system that's not allowing them to go there? So I would say that IAPT is the flagship of neoliberal mental health care. And it's a system that's actually aggravating what I call the capitalist life syndrome. This helps that really a lot. So the system was developed by the economist Layard, uh, who was in Parliament, I believe, at the time, 
and is literally the aim that he wrote in his report of this new system is to prevent the further failure of mental health care and failure was mainly defined in terms of economic costs. And then he was actually at a certain point, he was at a party and he happened just to meet a psychologist there and the psychologist happened to be David Clark, one of the big, um, yeah, I dare to call him like a guru in cognitive behavior therapy. I'm a cognitive behavior therapist myself in, as one of my trainings in the background. I actually have had some training by David Clark. Nothing wrong with that. However, the issue was with David Clark is, of course, surprise, surprise, when he's, David Clark started to advise Layard what to do, how to make all the cost reductions, he said, well, let's give CBT to everyone, cognitive behavior therapy. And well, that's a system that they started to advise to the government. And then you start to have a look at who else was on the board who helped to develop IAP. Each person, each person has a direct link with the pharmaceutical industry. And when you actually then start to look at all the advices from the guidelines at this moment for mental health in the NHS, and I looked it up, it took me a full day going through all the CVs. 83% of those people have connections with the pharmaceutical industry. And they are the people deciding about what type of mental health care we should get. They decide the policies. And surprise, surprise, is that in reality, what we really see is that they actually, the big proposal of this model is, well, most people should just get cognitive behavior therapy and pharmaceutical uh, yeah, interventions like James was already telling about the staggering numbers of people on drugs. So this is quite a thing. And particularly, I was actually starting to wonder at the time, 2006, when they started with this new system, possibly they had good arguments at the time. Possibly they knew about lots of research and telling that this is the best type of therapy for people. I thought, well, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's do some research on that. You understand that when I looked for any researchers, at the time there was not enough evidence that CBT and psychiatric drugs are the only or the most effective way of treating, on population level, people with mental health problems. There was no evidence for that at all. There's no, and now there have been even some more trials which have shown that CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, is not better than any other type of counseling in the NHS when you look at the large-scale numbers. There's no evidence that it's better. And also we see when we look at the cognitive behavior therapy trials, like I did said to say with many, many different types of psychotherapies in general, I'm not only saying it's bad about CBT, but there have been quite a lot of biases, and I'm more than happy to give you the papers which describe that. Where, at least, we can say not everything is immediately saying, yes, it's only positive. And there's actually no evidence that this type of stepped care and also this type of standardization of giving, like, a standard type of cognitive behavior therapy and standard type of drugs, there's no evidence that that would work better than just tailor-made, in the sense, like, when a client comes in that you create a unique therapy for that unique individual. There's no evidence that the standardization that I have promoted that is better. There's no evidence for that at all.
And actually, in IAPS, in one of the first stages, the first steps, is that you can only get five or six sessions of therapy. All research shows that when a client receives less than 16 to 20 sessions, they're very likely to be not successful. Or at least they won't really benefit from therapy. From five sessions, it's extremely unlikely that people will improve in the mental health. However, IAPT is giving mainly five or six sessions to most people. Whereas we know from actually most studies it's between 16 and 20 that people need. But hey, five sessions are of course cheaper than 16 to 20. So we understand that Layard, who was an economist and the main advisor of the government, that he said, well, let's do five sessions because that's cheap. Well, I would say give them, give them zero sessions, that's even cheaper, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm now almost co coming at the end of the first bit before the break, but I just want to shock you like enough to, to kind of shock you and, 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 and that you can then have some time to catch your breath after that, after that. But yeah, at least that was my experience when I started really diving into all those numbers. I started to dig into what's going on. I, I'm still shocked about this. Um, so then you start to look at who has been evaluating IAPS, those IAPS service, this National Health Service, what we now do. Um, important to know is that NHS trusts for mental health services get paid by effects. There's actually also a term that the World Health Organization has been promoting, payment by effects. That means if as a health organization you tell that all your clients recover, that you get more money than when you tell, well, some of them recover and not all of them. You may understand that this way of payment can create some pressures for some, some health services to possibly change the numbers slightly. And I will show you a little bit of the information and just have your own think, your own thoughts about this. The thing is that overall the studies, you can see them here on my screen, they say that over 50% of all individuals going through IAPT are cured in the sense that they don't experience the mental health problems anymore that they started with. And these, are, have, and these uh, problems have been measured with those two questionnaires that James has shown to you, which were developed by, yes, the pharmaceutical industry. Bear that in mind as well. And these were the outcomes on the basis of which this 50% effectiveness was uh, calculated. Interestingly enough, you would say, well, if health services get paid by results, that is how a government pays the money, then you need to make sure that the evaluation is done independently. So, what does NHS do? It's not done independently. Because actually David Clark, remember the guy whose, whose brainchild cognitive behavior therapy became so popular here, was also the person doing all the studies. And surprise, surprise, that he found out that it works very well. And then I started, actually it happens that I have done many randomized controlled trials myself, so I, I know how to write up those studies. And I started to think, hey, that's interesting. He's only looking mainly at the 50% of the patients with the biggest problems. And yeah, of course, so a person comes in with loads of problems, there's a lot of 
yeah, they can only improve. Let's say they, yeah, there's not, not so much space to get worse. But if you have people who come in with, yeah, I'm not feeling totally, f yeah, I'm not totally very bad, but also not that good, there's less space to, for improvement. So what actually David Clark did is he just cherry-picked the people for his studies. And on the basis of that, actually like it's being said, well, I have works perfect. And even worse, what you, what you really see is that, um, well, I'll just skip that, um, I'll just go down and they're saying like, when you look at independent studies, and which use different types of outcomes, which also uses interviews, in-depth interviews with people. They suggest that 9.2% of all clients in IAPT recover. So approximately 91% of all people going through IAPT do not recover. And compare that with the over 50% from David Clark. And when you look also at um, uh, the mental health care for children, similar numbers can be found there, according to the psychiatrist Timimi. And then you ask that to therapists themselves. Let, let, let's just ask the, the NHS workers themselves. What do they tell? Do they tell the same story? Or is this just like my academic kind of bias? No. Precisely the same story comes out. There was a big study a couple of years ago, 1,500 therapists in the NHS. They describe their IAP particularly, but in general mental health care in the NHS as a very complex working situation. Underpayment, powerlessness and fears high workload, performance management, and particularly almost half of them had worries about quality of care, which came into, I think, 60 or 70 percent, even when it was about IAPT. And these are therapists themselves who say they're worried about the therapy they are giving. And so, this is worrisome. And this is my last slide. Because this is about financial transparency. Because then you say, okay, how, how is it going then on with all the um, finances? Who's getting paid? I started to dig into that. Interestingly enough is when you look at all the official numbers that the government releases about mental health care, it is having a box that's saying that two-thirds of all the costs are other costs. And so it was totally in, uh, untransparent what they mean by other costs. Only one third was clear where that money goes to. I was wondering where does those two thirds go to. So I've been in touch with, with, with the British uh, uh, Medical Society. I've been in touch with several others. No one knows. They've also been writing critical reports. So I did a freedom of information request from, uh, with the government, from the department. And of course, I got a very nice letter that was saying how difficult it is to get actually all those numbers. In other words, yeah, yeah, well, we're not going to share you anything about where the money is going to. Interesting enough, we're all taxpayers, but we're not being told how money is being used. And we already know from almost effects that there are, that it's actually not effective, a lot of the, the way how the money is used. And the government refuses to give information about this. Interesting. We also know that actually more and more IAPT is getting funded instead of the long-term therapies, therapies um, there's no, uh, yeah, there's a very clear evidence for that. Um, yeah, I think I've, for the rest I've already said that. So I think I'm going to leave you for like a five minutes break. What I've been speaking about is 
Of course, I've been talking about the crisis, the different types of crisis that we live in. I have explained how our mental health is not only influenced by ourselves, but also by, by our surroundings, and particularly by the crisis that are there in society, the crisis in the climate, the crisis in socioeconomic issues, discrimination, racism, all those issues, how they have actually had a big, big impact on our mental health. That is how I started this talk. So the crisis in society has created a crisis in our individual mental health. And particularly, I've been focusing on the socioeconomic causes, and which I started to, to call like the capitalist life syndrome. Um, and then I was speaking about, I asked, well, if there's so many issues actually in a society, should people not actually be taught things at the schools to learn how to deal with it? And should people not actually um, also have a good mental health care than to solve or help people live with those difficult crises in life? And then I've showed, well, Unfortunately, mental health care system itself seems to be in crisis. And there seems to be a quite particularly strong role for a small, what I call a mental health oligarchy, of a small group of powerful individuals who have a lot of influence on the politics and the decisions in yeah, how the mental health care system is created. Um, so, what in the last part of my talk, what I'm going to talk about is two questions. What is the bigger picture that may be behind this? What's the bigger picture? And particularly, like, how could we solve those problems? So, this will be extremely ambitious, um, of course, where I'm going to try to solve a full problem uh, of decades and, uh, well, we'll see how far I come with that. So, what's behind this failure? Just, yeah. So, the first question is, is it the, is it the McDonaldization of our society? Or we just want to have quick solutions and, and just be happy? Or is it more about the social disintegration, um, about meaninglessness that people struggle with? Is it about the nature of, of our economic system? Or is this the deliberate intention of evil companies? Is it the capitalist life syndrome? Is this what, uh, for instance, some people uh, like Chomsky have called the, the manufactured consent for the system? So that we've actually never decided to actually, yeah, we've not wanted this system, but we're being given the system. And, well, that's what we, yeah, are made to believe it's the best. Or is it actually that we're being manipulated all the time, what I call the mind mafia? Or uh, is this a, are we selling out as academics and as therapists, like what James has been telling about earlier today? So these are just some of those questions we can ask uh, when we start to look at a bigger picture behind it. Just some first shots uh, that I can say, well, is it this? I don't know. So. I summarized some of my thoughts and some of the preliminary evidence in the next five statements. So these are five hypotheses. And I'm not saying that each of these is true or possibly they're all true. And that's very much to make up your own mind. But these are five possible, 
ways to look at actually how can we understand the large number of people suffering from mental health problems and the also the structural issues in the mental health care system itself. So the first one, my the first hypothesis is about the weakness of the policymakers. Because when I was telling you about IAP, so IAP was introduced in 2006. The politicians who were then in power, the Prime Minister at the time, they simply lacked the expertise on mental health. They didn't know any better. Possibly they've never gone to a psychotherapist, and most likely they have not studied psychotherapy. They, so to some extent, can we blame them? So, because they were dependent on lobbyists, they were dependent on others telling them what to do. So you could say, well, they were actually, they had a lack of expertise. They were dependent on others, and those others just happened to be, yeah, people who had quite a lot of money behind them. Yeah, that's, that's the way how to see it. Another thing is that you can actually say, like, the traditional left, like also labor has actually not been focal enough against those trends that have been going on. Whereas the traditional left, when we speak more from a Marxist background or a communist background, Leninist, uh, uh, or, uh, uh, or for instance when we speak about Trotsky uh, uh, type background, people focus relatively a lot on improving the material conditions. The ideas Almost, now I'm totally, totally stereotyping, I totally know that. Some people will become really angry when I say that. But um, where the traditional idea is, well, just make sure that the socioeconomic circumstances are okay, and then the mental health will almost follow from that. So um, just first look at the foundations and the, that superstructure of, of like culture, of, of a mind, that, that will come later, automatically. Interestingly enough is that actually already beginning of the 80s when you look at the work from Sir Keith Joseph you could already see that he said well if we want to dominate this culture this country we need to focus on mental health on the spirit of people we need to think about that whereas labor or the left seem to relatively focus less on that at that time. And we see a similar trend also in the United States where the Reagan administration at the same time also started to really speak about how can we to some extent control the population by via the mental health, and not only via the materialistic circumstances. So it almost seems as if the left has kind of left like a, actually like a vacuum there, mental health, which the more right-wing and conservative type of politicians could actually fill. And this is also at the beginning of the 20th century, there was the economist Keynes, uh, or Keynes, how do you say that in English? Uh, and he actually said, like, uh, his prediction was that in our era, in a century later, that actually um, we would be working less hours and have better wealth. That was his prediction. And he has filled. He has failed in that his prediction. And, of course, uh, people with more neoliberal background are saying, well, that's because he's a left uh, uh, economist. So, of course, he failed. However, when you start to look, why did he fail? That was because he did not factor in, in his model, that people can change what they want. 
People can change the living standards. For instance, in his era, like a, cent like a century ago, people did not need to have a big plasma uh, 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 television uh, yeah, on the wall. People did not need to have a fridge. People did not need to have expensive mobile phones and the latest version of an iPhone or whatever type of phone you have. People didn't need that. So what you see is like people now want a lot of stuff they didn't possibly don't totally need. Or yeah, possibly we need them or we think we need them. And this is what happened at the beginning of the 20th century. There were some very revolutionary ideas in, at the beginning of the 20th century. But the idea became particularly in the Austrian School of Economics, where they were saying, well, actually what people want and how people evaluate things, that matters a lot. And then, if we know that it matters, we could possibly manipulate that. And that is actually where, and people who have actually seen some of my previous talks, they know I often speak about public relations and how at the beginning of the 20th century there was a man, Bernays, who came up with this idea about big promotional campaigns and advertising. Of course there had been some advertising before, but he brought it to a total new different level where he very deliberately started to use psychological techniques to manipulate what we want or things that we want to associate ourselves with. That's for instance, uh, it's an example I often give, um, it's for instance uh, uh, that uh, Bernays was behind a big campaign uh, to actually help women to become more, uh, yeah, actually to support the feminist cause because at a time only men were smoking and uh, so it was a very masculine thing, but yeah, so women were of course in the cage, uh, women were oppressed because they were not allowed to smoke. So he helped women to smoke. How did he do that? Because there were some big marches going on, I believe New York, and um, he actually had those women, uh, the big front figures, there with a cigarette. And he branded those cigarettes, Torches of Freedom. Great, great name. Um, and yeah, whereas almost nobody had been smoking before the campaign, or I mean, no women had been smoking, suddenly, that other half of the population <laughs> who had never been smoking, suddenly could see it as like a rebellious thing to smoke. And that is why nowadays, unfortunately I did to say, a lot of women also smoke. And that's very much like, again, what he did was, he changed what people want. Things, he changed, he manipulated the ideas about what we want to associate ourselves with. And so they used the psychology, they used the mind. So you see that companies have been very deliberately, and economists in the more neoliberal tradition, from, for instance, the Austrian School, and later also the Chicago School of Economics, they've always paid attention to the psychology whereas the more traditional left has not done that. So, yeah, this is a slide that's just saying, well, policymakers have been influenced really a lot by the psychiatrists, by the pharmaceutical industry, but I don't need to tell you that. Uh, James has already spoken about that. Uh, James was possibly not so good in promoting his own book, but please do read this one, it's an amazing book. Um, because I would never dare to do any PR except for my friends, so yeah. Um, so that was the first option. 
the first hypothesis about what's really going on behind the, behind the screens, like behind the matrix. So the second point, what could be going on, is what I call the shock doctrine of mental health. And the term shock doctrine is a term that comes from Naomi Klein, an economist. And what she says is like, governments will use any type of crisis to push forward their own agenda. So, for instance, um, yeah, any crisis, uh, let's, well, I'm, I'm just going to apply that immediately, you know. So, one of the things, what they're saying is, um, oh, it's not right on the, side, on the slide, but there's, for instance, an economist from the London School of Economics, McDate, McDite, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he was saying, well, when we look at the mental health care system, we see that it's economically doing very bad. And now we've had the financial crisis in 2008. And hey, yeah, the, the, the governmental financing, they're doing very wrong because we had to, to pay out uh, all the banks, we had to solve the debt. So we don't have money for the mental health care system anymore. So what we need to do is use this actually as a positive opportunity to make mental health care much more efficient and make sure that we grab this, this, this moment in time to make it into a perfect system which focuses mainly at like cost reductions and privatization and giving more influence to the pharmaceutical industry. So this is literally what he wrote in a paper. And this paper is, has been lobbied for in some documents by the EU. The EU has taken over his work from this guy, McDade. And this has been a like a perspective of the EU that the EU is saying, well, it's preferable yeah, that we have a system that is um, yeah, focused on privatization, mainly on drugs, on cost-effective care, like the IAPT in the UK, which is used as an example. And, but the main argument for that is because we need to do a cost reduction. So that's the shock doctrine of, me of mental health care. It's like saying, well, there's a crisis, financial crisis, uh, and there's possibly also mental health crisis. Many people are in problems. So let's use that to actually push forward our neoliberal agenda. So this is actually what we also saw happening, for instance, in Greece. When there were negotiations between the EU and Greece about the debt, you, you may remember that about Brexit, all those things like that from some years ago. One of the small prints that few people know about is that actually the government, that actually the Greece government were told to totally reorganize the Greek mental health care system. That was one of those conditions. And hey, surprise, surprise, how did they have to change the mental health care system in Greece? Of course, by privatization, using a system something like IAPT, and maybe investing a lot in the pharmaceutical industry and CBT, and getting rid of all other types of therapies. Because this is the best way to actually make some cost reduction. That was the argument. Interesting. And of course, the pharmaceutical industry was very kind in offering support in the restructuring of the mental health care system in Greece. Surprise, surprise. So, and also, yeah, the thing here in the UK is when, we, when you look at the mental health care, um, there's already uh, almost 10% of the mental health care system has already been privatized. And this is really getting uh, quicker and quicker. These are even numbers from some years ago, and I dare to say that this number is much bigger. Um, so, this is Chomsky, and Chomsky 
has a saying, and um, I actually find this always a very intriguing citation, what he said. And I think it does apply to mental health care as well. That's the standard technique of privatization. Defund. Make sure things don't work. People get angry, you hand it over to private capital. That's the social security scam. If they can't succeed in defunding it, they've been trying for decades. So what Chomsky is saying is it's much more bolder than what I dare to say, but I can see a trend which is not totally saying that he is wrong. That indeed in mental health care, what we've been seeing is that the system, the mental health care system, is really failing. And that failure of the system, you see, has actually been used by people to say, well, let's then privatize it. Because you see, when it's nationalized, it doesn't work. What I dare to say is, with the current trend, I dare to say within 10 years, the mental health care system here in the UK can be possibly totally privatized. I would not be surprised. Because they will say, well, the IAP system totally failed. So yeah, let's privatize it, because it fails. And that argument is sometimes already being used to actually, that some local CCGs are actually like, um, actually making more contracts with private healthcare providers because they're not happy with IAPT. So they're using the failure of the mental health care system to give more money to the big private companies. Option three is the failure of human rights. So the thing is, when we think about the history of mental health care, we know how in the past human rights have been violated in a very terrible way. We know actually about, for instance, how psychiatric patients have also been brought to the concentration camps uh, uh, yeah, in, 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 the, uh, in, in the Nazi regime. We also know that in Stalinist uh, uh, Russia, that for its political uh, opponents were branded as psychiatric patients and they had, had lobotomy and all the other stuff going on. And in response to that, after the Second World War, actually countries developed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and, um, which sounds good, because that includes like, the right also for like, mental health. And, but the question is, like, what are human rights really about? And when you really start to look at research on the use of human rights in mental health care is that quite often it seems to be used as more as a checkbox exercise instead of quality of care. So it's more like guaranteeing that you're not doing something wrong, so making sure you're not violating human rights, instead of really thinking from the other way around, like what's the best thing that people need? So you give them the minimum to prevent that you're not being uh, uh, yeah, caught, uh, like the UN actually did with the UK, like what I told before. Um, so this is a point that quite a lot of actually big services are saying. Like last year in December, a big, big network of mental health organizations, they actually were saying, well, there is structural human rights violations actually going on in the UK in mental health care. The, U the UK government structurally refuses to give people with mental health diagnosis full human rights, and it ignores the voices from service users in the formal mental health care refuse. And they gave examples about people who were wrongly detained, about the, uh, the unethical and the uh, illegal use of restraints in psychiatric wards, 
There have been 40 deaths on the ferry, terrible circumstances, and there have been long waiting lists. These are all direct violations of the human rights for people with mental health issues. So we need to start with a new paradigm, not only thinking about how we can prevent human rights violation, but to think about what do people actually need. That's, that's the other way of thinking, and that's speaking about social justice. And that's a totally different argument. A similar thing is actually what we all see as neocolonialism. And I've already given almost like as an example how Western, yeah, how the IMF and the EU have been imposing their ideas on Greece as an example. But similar trends you can see in many other countries uh, which um, were former colonies. And um, a lot of psychiatrists have written about the psychological impact of yeah, being part of a colony or a former colony. And um, in 2011, the World Health Organization says that there is a treatment gap um, where actually people, particularly in Africa and South and Latin America and also in some Southeast Asian countries, not everyone has access to mental health care. So what does the World Health Organization advise? It is to use a standard approach. Quite literally, that is what they wrote in the report. What does that standard approach mean that the World Health Organization advises? That is, of course, an individualized Western uh, medicine model, particularly in terms of uh, using good psychiatric diagnosis from the DSM and ICD. We've already heard uh, from James how well that system is. And then also particularly use, uh, make sure that people have access to pharmaceutical treatment. Literally, this is what the World Health Organization is saying, that this is a human right for everyone to be able to get a diagnosis and to get treated. Yes, have a think about that. Because it's not so, it doesn't sound so nice knowing the background, what does it actually mean? Particularly when you look at who are the people who are training people in those countries. Where is the money coming from to change that system? Well, and actually, like, that's a good example uh, that actually China Mills gives in a book about uh, neocolonialism of global mental health. Amazing book. And she speaks, actually gives an example of India in an area where there were many rice farmers. Um, and at one point, the price of rice totally fell. So a lot of rice farmers became quite suicidal, <laughs> depression, anxiety. And actually, like so, the government had a big problem because many people have mental health problems. So they, they flew in some Western experts and they thought, well, let's set up some big psychiatric clinics. They did. They handed out all the psychiatric drugs, all for free, obviously. So big investments, I believe a couple of billions were invested to yeah, help all those poor farmers to think better, feel better about themselves. And you just give them some, some psychiatric drugs and everything will be fine. Whereas the actual problem was they couldn't survive. They had no money because the rice price had collapsed. But that was not addressed. We can go even one step further. And that is like what I call the brave new world. And this is possibly the big question. Is this all a deliberate policy? I don't know. Is it like that we are being manipulated quite deliberately? Like there is some history where governments quite deliberately have been trying to 
They controlled people, starting with the Romans who were offering bread and circuses to prevent the rioting of the population, to the brainwashing programs from the CIA or um, also in Russia. The CIA has developed big handbooks on how to torture people, how to manipulate people, which is still being used in Guantanamo Bay. We know in China, China has uh, a very clear governmental policy of restructuring the brains of people, particularly from Christians and uh, Muslims, who are now being put also in some kind of concentration camps. Similar in Chechnya, where there are some, at this moment, some uh, conversion camps for gay and lesbian people. And they're using psychological techniques. And also, I've already mentioned how governments literally spend money on how to nudge people into certain behavior like paying taxes, starting with that. I've already mentioned Sir Keith Joseph's white papers. I've already also like, mentioned how vulnerable people um, actually also feel manipulated, feel discriminated, oppressed. And actually, like, what I did to say is like, in a, anxiety is one of the biggest symptoms of our time, possibly more than depression, when you really, really look at the numbers of people who suffer from anxiety. But when you actually do not give people the self-insight or the self-development or good care, that anxiety remains there. What do we do with that anxiety? We can actually put that, impose that on others. Say, well, it's the foreigners, it's the EU, it's climate change researchers, it's all those people, they are wrong, not me. So that's quite handy for politicians if people are anxious. Anxiety is something you can use as a politician. However, these are hypotheses. I don't know. It's for you to make a decision. These are hypotheses. So what do we do? That's what I will speak about in the last couple of minutes. Because this, is, this can be a scary world. And I don't want you to get away from here like, oh, we're all we're totally done for. No, I don't want you to leave in that way. But I want you to be aware of the system of things that can go wrong. So, the first thing about policy is, I think we should not only look at ticking the boxes of human rights, but we should be actually real fighting for social justice. We actually, I think also mental health care, we need to have tailored care, culturally sensitive, and not only a stepped care or only like a one-size-fits-all approach, which may not help for everyone. It's also important that we have independent bodies evaluating what's going on in the mental health care system. Independent. And I think we need to have a parliamentary investigation into corruption and cronyism in the mental health care system in the UK, and particularly in how the IEFT has been developed. And particularly all the people who are earning from the system. I think that also economists should not have a determining role in, uh, yeah, in making decisions about mental health care policies. Of course, they can contribute, like everyone can, but in the end, it needs to be a clinician with knowledge about the field who should actually be making those decisions. And actually, even more better, of even better, is to include mental health advocates and service users in that. And also have a full transparency of budgets and not hide two-thirds of all the mental health care budgets. I want to know where our money, where my tax money is going to. And also I want to get rid of those conflicts of interests. 
And also what already also James mentioned is to have neutral research grant allocation and not having the pharmaceutical industry only pay for the big trial. <coughs> you remember this one. This is how I started my presentation with this sense of self in the middle and how I'm embedded in all those different circles that where possible crises are in and how I can actually, um, yeah, how, how I can be influenced. In a similar way as how I've described the problems in mental health, we can have a look at, the, at how, where we can find the solutions. So let's start on a global level. I think, yeah, we are being influenced by the socioeconomic inequality. So if that has an impact on mental health, we need to have to think about, do we still want then that socioeconomic inequality? If you are also worried about climate, is it time to change? If we are in society, are affected by the way our education system works, our benefit system works, do we want to change that? If we are having troubles in a neighborhood or community, do we want to have some interventions there? If we have problems in our daily life at the work, do we want to empower people um, and give them life skills training, training at work? If people have a range of issues with the emotions, do we want to actually train people in education? Do we want to give people much more resilience, many more resources? And if, if there are, in the end, if we have looked at all those social issues and we have tried to find some solutions there, if there may still be something going on, have a look at, well, could there possibly be something more biological on the level we could work on? Possibly, yes, pharmaceuticals, there may be a place for it. I'm not saying there's no place for it. Absolutely, there can be. But let's first have a look at the wider context before we start there. And also in the end, like, existential, humanistic or spiritual care can have a very important solution for people to learn how to deal with the stresses and the existential issues from our era. So on an individual basis I call this use a kind of a phenomenological stance as radical self-care. So phenomenology is, is like what I often say like there's like it's like unpeeling your feelings, get rid of the outer layers of your feelings until you really arrive at your heart. Is get rid of the outer layers and just look, is that like really meaningful, is that not meaningful, does it make sense, does it not make sense? Use your critical self-intuition, your self-analysis, be critical about it. And ask yourself, is this me? Or is this actually an idea that others impose on me? If my family, if my friends, if my work, if my colleagues, if they tell me I'm crazy, but I feel I'm not crazy. What's going on? Could it actually be that my response is a normal response to an abnormal situation? And also, is this the real problem or is this not a real problem? Is, could there be something deeper underlying when I'm really stressed in my work? Could it actually be that the workplace is the problem and not me? Just be critical about that. It could still be that you have a psychological problem that you need to have primarily a care. Could be. But ask yourself that before you start labeling yourself. And like also start with the outer circles of the problem before you go to yourself. Start from the outside. And seek the help that needs, that fits your needs. And this is my last slide. Because these are just some examples of solutions that do exist, of very good programs. And examples of this are 
yeah, things like the open dialogue, which is like a very a social system type of approach to people with mental health problems. There's also the Housing First program, which is very much about, yeah, let's first help people, uh, help, let's give them first housing before we start really treating them in a psychiatric way. For instance, like homeless people, instead of putting drugs in them first, let's first give them a bed and food. Let's start there. And there's so many more examples of charities and very good initiatives that do work, like Mind in Camden, or, um, or physicists, when we look at the Working Well Trust. There are very good trainings that do exist for psychotherapists that give attention to what's really going on and what the needs that people really have, like existential therapy, humanistic types of therapies that do do justice to what people really need. So I think that that is, I hope, the message that I can give you is to say, well, be critical about what's going on. But it's not hopeless because there are many good initiatives and we can develop ourselves in that way. So, if you want to know more about everything that I've been saying, um, I've been going a bit beyond, but some of the things you can read in the book that we're going to launch in a couple of weeks' time. And there's also going to be a big conference on meaning uh, this uh, summer, um, yeah, which is also going into this topic. And you can also see a flyer lying around here. There are actually two ones. Of course, there's the one, the training I'm going to give but also for people living with cancer. That's another example where, um, for instance, when you have cancer, that ha can have a big impact on your emotional health. And instead of, yeah, treating people only medically to s help people to see them as a full person, uh, I'm running now therapies, uh, free therapy actually, um, for people with cancer. Um, well, these are just some examples, and I'm really looking forward to your questions and your feedback. So, thank you very much. So, questions? Hi, um, my name is Lisa McKenna. I'm one of the co-founders of the Mental Health Resistance Network. And I think our logo was on your last slide. We've got our list of demands, and we're demanding many of the things that you talk about that you want to provide. We're not completely agree with what we're saying. We recognize all of these things. We're a group of people who have used mental health services, and many of us have done so for many years. We have some of us are involved in Act 5. We have moved back a long way, but we really have this network to set up to fight against what this government laughingly called welfare reforms. Actually, it's the abolition of the social security system and it's also the brutalization of people with mental health problems because you know this stuff that you're talking about, all of this, you're to blame, you're the problem, you're This is now happening in therapy rooms, NHS therapy rooms and consulting rooms across the country. We've got um, psychiatrists telling them, you stop yourself out. Um, you are to blame, you are the problem. And, and the one thing you always talk about, just um, bring you up to be honest, but when you talk about people with very severe mental health problems, people who have been, I know we're all questioning diagnosis these days, but people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia and been off their head for 30 years, what's happening to them? They're being chucked out of the system altogether. They don't want to see any of us with severe mental health problems because they think we're not going to be of much use for the capitalist economy. 
Thank you very much. I think indeed that you're doing really amazing work, so thank you for that. You're a very good example why we can keep going on with having hope. That's why you're also on the slide with solutions, so thanks. <laughs> I, saw, I saw someone here. Very good question. Uh, um, yeah, the thing is, like, what I believe in is, yeah, where you have, like, at least independent bodies who do the audit. Um, you can have the auditing bodies who, for instance, really collect and calculate um, the results, for instance, from questionnaires, but also have independent interviews. That's also an important one, but also to have a wider range of questionnaires that you use. So, for instance, what I mentioned is like in, in the NHS, they use, for instance, mainly those two questionnaires, which actually also James has already mentioned, to measure depression and anxiety. Questionnaires which work very well for CBT. A surprise, surprise. Um, and they work as well for pharmaceutical, in, uh, for pharmaceutical type of treatment. Whereas when you actually ask people, okay, what is it actually what you want to get out of therapy? People are usually not saying that they want to get, for instance, rid of their label. They say, no, I just want to be able to live a good, meaningful life, despite of my problems. But that is not what the questionnaires actually check. Those questionnaires check whether they don't fulfill those criteria, which were made up by, a, well, not totally made up, but at least was agreed by voting, as James told before. So, what we really need to look at is like look at what are the outcomes that people really need. And that is very much also looking at things like the ability to live a meaningful and satisfying life, despite all the challenges and crises that we may be having. So we need to have a, a wider range of outcomes. We need to also have in-depth interviews, etc. And all of that needs to be collected and analyzed, I think, by independent bodies. And I think only in that way we can get a better idea about what works and what doesn't work. I think the person behind. Sorry, yes?
this is precisely the question I'm asking myself. I don't know the answer. Um, what I do know is, um, yeah, I, I've heard a lot of inside stories, too many actually, uh, and I'm all, in all different political parties there are many biases and myths. Uh, I've heard some, well, singers like Jeremy Corbyn, uh, whatever you think about him, he has been speaking up, he has been stepping up for mental health several times in the last year. Um, and he has had some comments where he was really saying that the system really needs to be changed, the stigma needs to be changed. And I've not seen Theresa May do that. Uh, possibly I've just missed it, it's possible. But um, also Jeremy Corbyn is also speaking about wanting to change the education system, not having like all those test scores, not only focus on that. Possibly that, I don't know. It's, uh, but we really see it's very fragile balance. And um, yeah, James would know much more about that because he works much more, much closer with people in Parliament. He has a lot of sessions in Parliament itself to really speak and inform people. And uh, sometimes it can be really shocking a lack of knowledge that people have. And uh, yeah, but possibly also that the other person uh, from, from, from uh, could also tell a bit more uh, about what yeah about. How many? How much people are listening? But yeah, it's a good question. Hi, my name is Shane, and as a, a recent service user, still service user, and going through the IR system, um, I can say it's a complete failure um, because it took me a year and a half to go through the IR system for that form. By the time I got to a, a session, then they said they couldn't help me. Unfortunately, I was then referred to a specialist psych, um, psychosis unit. Mm -hmm. But that, that whole high-up system just completely failed. And there's a lot of vulnerable people that are falling through the system because they have to wait so long for therapy or for something to happen. Um, and it's up to society to, to step forward and say, Absolutely, we yeah. can't put this in the hands of just these few people. Yeah. Now, it is one of the things is very much like that the waiting lists are long and in this type of stepped care system you need to actually be deemed, um, yeah, how shall I say that, um, you, you need to follow first uh, the first steps to be able to really arrive there and have the right type of care. Whereas there is, there is some very good care. Let's start with that as well. There's some extremely good therapists, also in NHS. There are really good people, very effective, who give very good therapy, very tailored, precise what people need. A lot of people do benefit from it. So don't get me wrong about that. However, the way how it's created is that it can take quite a long time before we get there. And that's also the point that I hear from you. And I think that that's important to actually say, yeah, I think it's time that we need to step up and be angry about that because it's, People deserve to have the right care and quite, quite soon when they need it and not wait for too long until you are really in a crisis. So, unfortunately, that's all that we have for yep. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast 
and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.